talk to you about Abraham and uh, some events that took place in his life and then we'll move on over to the New Testament parallels and uh, revelation that's there. Genesis 17 verse 1. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face. Certainly he's bowing down to worship God. Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with thee. And thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant. Therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man child in your generations, he that is born in the house or bought with money, of any stranger which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must, need, must needs be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised that so shall be cut off from his people for he has, he has broken my covenant. And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarah your wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai any more, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed, and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? And Abraham said, O unto Abraham said unto God, O that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with the seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make of him a great nation." But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee this time, at this set time next year. And he left off talking with him, and God went up from, uh, from Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael and his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day as God had said unto him. Now notice that... Um, uh, verse 1 told us that he was 99 years old. We know a little bit of the timeline of Abraham's life based on what the Scripture tells us. It says in, uh, when God first appeared to Abram, um, he was 75 years old. So we know that 24 years has passed. We know that Ishmael has already been born. Uh, we know that um, Ishmael was 13. According to the Scripture, he was 13 when Abraham 
had all of his households, all the men in his household, men and boys, circumcised as a token of the covenant. What we see in this, and one of the things I think is really important for us to, uh, to point out and, and uh, take record of or take account of, notice that Abraham is, begins by falling on his face and worshiping God. But there comes a point in what some of the things that God said to him that's just too much for Abraham to accept. Let me read to you again verse 17. After God promises uh, that he and Sarah will have a son, then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that's 100 years old and shall Sarah that is 90 years old bear? There are a lot of different commentators and um, uh, commentaries that try to put this uh, information in verse 17 about Abraham laughing in a reverential tone. There are a lot of people that are saying that Abraham was worshiping God. He's laughing and rejoicing because he's worshiping God. And that certainly would fit with verse 1 where it says he fell on his face. Or what, verse 1, 2, wherever it is in there, beginning of the chapter. Where he falls on his face and he's worshiping God. That would certainly fit. But this word laughed really means laughed. I won't take the time to, to read it, but in Chapter 18, Genesis chapter 18, he tells us about the Lord coming down and tells Abraham what he's going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah and, uh, you know, the interaction they had there. Um, in chapter 18, well, let me just start reading with verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I have waxed old, shall I have pleasure in my Lord being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore or why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I have a surety bear a child unto which I uh, which am old? Verse 14, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Now we know that there is, uh, that chapter 18, the events in chapter 18 are less than a year after what takes place and what God said to Abraham in chapter 17. The reason we know that is because in chapter 17, God said that this set time next year. So he establishes a deadline. He said a year from now, Sarah shall bear a child. Well, assuming a full-term pregnancy of nine months, then chapter 18 has to happen within that three-month period of time, that three-month window. The word laughed in chapter 18 concerning Sarah is exactly the same word that's used when it tells us that Abraham fell on his face and laughed. So whatever we're going to ascribe to one, we've got to ascribe to the other just based on the, the wording that's used. In other words, what I'm trying to get to is if Abraham rejoiced in chapter 17 at the promise of God, then that has to mean that Sarah is rejoicing in chapter 18 when the same word is used for her laugh. Well, that doesn't fit. When Abraham heard from God that Sarah would bear a child, and he falls on his face and laughs. Notice the very next thing that he said. He said, don't you know how old we are? I'm almost 100 and Sarah's 90. There's no way that we can bear children. At least that's the implication. He doesn't come out and say it. But it seems to imply that he thinks they're too old to have the son of promise. Now remember, children was one of the, uh, the, was really the main point as far as Abraham was concerned, the main point of God appearing to him in the beginning. 
and the promises that he made to him when he was 75 years old. Now, 24 years later, God's talking about him having a child within a year. And Abraham, the Bible says that Abraham laughed and asked God to remember Ishmael. Now, why would he do that if he's not laughing at the absurdity of he and Sarah having a child at their age? If he's rejoicing, Ishmael's not going to be on his mind. And then in chapter 18, when Sarah laughs, she denied laughing, but Abraham called her out on it because the Lord said so. The Lord said she was laughing. He questions her about it, and she says, oh, no, I didn't laugh. And Abraham said, well, he said you did, so you did. What's happened in the time that Abraham was 75 years old and God makes his original promise to make him a father of a multitude? What's happened over those 24 years to cause Abraham and Sarah to laugh at the thought of something so impossible or outlandish would take place? Time is one of the great stealers of our faith. 24 years have passed. Abraham saw God do everything he promised that he would do for him. The only thing that was left of the original promise and and subsequent promises that God made in appearing to Abraham, I think he appeared to him five different times during his life that we have record of. What's happened from the faith that he began to develop by seeing God fulfill promise after promise after promise to now he's at the point where he says, don't you know we're too old for this now? Just bless Ishmael. He was born in my house. Just bless him. And Sarah pretty much does the same thing. But the Lord gives some instruction in the form of a question where it comes to Sarah. He says it of Sarah, but he didn't say it of Abraham. The thing that the Lord responds to Sarah's laughter is he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, these 24 years have passed. They've gone by. They've ticked by day by day, hour by hour. Somewhere along the way, Abraham went from the place of remembering that God promised to give him a son to where now he's thinking this is just a funny saying for God to be talking about at this point in their lives. One of the things that I've found is that when things are delayed, and Proverbs says this, Proverbs 13, uh, I think it's 13 verse 12. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it's a tree of life. The Bible warns us time and time and time again that things are going to take longer than what we think they will or think they should. But that doesn't change one bit of God's promise. One thing that I've found over the years in some of the battles that I've been in the middle of and and church-related and also personally, one of the things I've found out is the devil is relentless. He never takes a day off. He's always there to question God's Word, to question your belief in God's Word, to question you as far as your worthiness to receive what God's promised. He never lets up. 
And I think in a lot of people's situations, in a lot of people's lives, he's more diligent about bringing accusation than we are about holding fast to the truth. So God asked a question. He asked it of Abraham. I'm wondering what was the difference in Abraham and Sarah? See, when Abraham laughed, and again, it's the same word, it's either a laugh of reverence or a laugh of unbelief. And it looks to me like it's a laugh of unbelief. If it weren't a laugh of unbelief in Sarah's case, there wouldn't have been nothing for the Lord to ask. And they both had the same experience. Somewhere over those three months, Abraham has taken God serious on the promise. Somewhere, some way through means that we don't know, Abraham has come back around to accepting God's promise just like he accepted it when he was 75 years old. But Sarah had to do the same thing. Sarah's listed in the Hall of Faith, Hall of Fame of Faith people in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. It says, by faith, Sarah received strength to conceive. Her faith is identified as, a, as heroic faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Well, we know what had to do it in her case. She had to address the possibility question. She had to come to the place where she accepted that it was not impossible with God. Sure, it looks impossible. It would be impossible if we were just relying on natural means. But nothing's impossible with God. What brought Abraham to that place? Folks, I believe it was the same thing. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, it tells us about Abraham's faith. I don't want to read the whole thing, but... um, Well, I'm going to have to read the whole thing. Verse 17. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead... And calleth those things that be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope. Against hope is talking about the ages of their bodies. And the circumstance in their flesh. But who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. What did he believe in? According to that which was spoken. So shall your seed be. And being not weak in faith. He considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old. Now folks that's, that happens sometime between Genesis 17 and Genesis 18. Because in Genesis 17, when he was 99, and the Lord appeared to him and told him these things, made some wonderful promises and, and explanations about the covenant that he was entering into with Abraham. Abraham finishes up that time together by laughing in his heart. So being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, verse 21, and two characteristics he mentions, praising God for the answer before he saw the answer, and secondly, in verse 21, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. That happened sometime after Genesis 17. But I believe it was the same thing because it identifies the characteristic of Abraham's faith. Somewhere, some way, somehow, Abraham came to the place where he accepted that it was possible no matter 
what his age was, no matter how old his body was, no matter what did or didn't function in his body, he accepts that God said it and so it was possible. Now let me show you some other people's faith. We've got uh, many records, many uh, examples of people that were believing for things and we apply those to our own lives. If Abraham could believe God for the impossibility of a child being born to him when he was 100 and his wife was 90, then we can believe God for X, Y, Z. We can believe God for whatever promise is there in the Word. But I want you to turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 10. I believe Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. But whoever it is is inspired by God to write these things. Verse 32. But call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated you endured a great fight of afflictions but call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated you endured a great fight of afflictions at the time that this is written again I believe it's Paul it's certainly Paul's message Paul's gospel so if it wasn't Paul it was somebody that would write it in the same way that he did but the Holy Ghost inspires the writer of Hebrews to write to people that have endured persecution for over 20 years If you go back and look at the book of Acts, it tells us about in chapter 7 about how they stoned Stephen and uh, Saul was consenting unto his death. He was holding the coats of the people that were doing the the rock throwing. And then in chapter 8 it says, and there arose, verse 1 it says, and there arose a great persecution against the church. There are two places or two um, um, types of persecution that Israel, or the early church I should say, that the early church endured. One was at the hand of the Jews. There are three different persecutions that are mentioned in the book of Acts or waves of persecution. Maybe that's a better way to say it. By the Jews. And long before the government, the Roman government, begins to persecute the church, the Jews did. The Jews were very much involved in persecuting Christians. Once they got a taste of Christian blood, so to speak, the Jews came after them with everything they had. In fact, the, uh, the word persecute itself means to hunt like you would an animal. And so not only did they persecute the church in Jerusalem, the Christian church in Jerusalem, but the Jews followed the Christians wherever they went. And again in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, it talks about a great persecution arose. And so Christians were scattered all over the place. Well, that wasn't good enough for the Jews. They weren't just trying to get rid of the Christians in Jerusalem. They undertook hunting them down, which is exactly what Saul was on the way to Damascus to do when he came in contact with Jesus. And these persecutions would come and go in waves, but for the better part, if we understand correctly when this was written, the dating of this, if it was Paul, it had to be before 64 A.D., That's when he was martyred for his belief in Jesus. So for about 20 years off and on, mostly on, more on than off, for about 20 years or 20 plus years, these people have been hanging on to the promise of God for deliverance, for the promise of Jesus' return. They've been holding on to the promise of victory, 
And it looks like everything but victory is theirs. And Paul writes in the, he- the letter to the Hebrews, the Hebrew Christians. He writes to them, encouraging them not to let go of their faith. Over these 20 years or so, they've come to the place through, uh, if we identify what Paul is saying to the, the uh, church and why he's saying what he's saying. Some of these people are getting ready to let go. They're certainly tempted to let go. It's called remembrance, the former days in which after you were illuminated. You see that word illuminated? That's talking about receiving revelation of God. The word illuminated just simply means a bright and flashy light. A light that's bright enough to create a a permanent impact. Well, what's the illumination that's being talked about here? What bright light shined into them? that altered their, the course of their lives. Well, we know this is a lead into chapter 11 where the Hall of Fame of Faith people is talked about. And chapter 11 is all about people who received a word from God and dedicated their lives to it. Some much longer than what the church has undergone the, or endured their persecution. Noah's mentioned in chapter 11. Most everybody agrees that Noah spent either 100 to 120 years building the ark. He received the revelation of something that was going to happen. Something that nobody had ever seen before. And he dedicated his life and his resources for 100 to 120 years to hold fast to that. I wonder if he was ever tempted to let go. Well, these Christians that Paul is trying to encourage, he tells them to remember the word that was spoken, no matter how long it has been, no matter how tough it's been in the meantime. And so he, he tells them, gives them some information about how to stand strong in faith. Back up with me to verse 23. He said, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. What's he doing? He's trying to, to encourage Christians that have undergone persecution both from the Jews and also from the Roman government. He's trying to encourage them. And when he says hold fast, this word hold fast, it doesn't just mean take a grip hold, uh, or hold on to something. It means a lot more than that. It's a lot more descriptive in the Greek language. It means to wrap yourself into it, if it was a rope, it doesn't mean just to hold on to the rope, but it means to tie the rope around yourself so that it becomes one with you to take your weight and put the weight on top of this promise that you're holding on to so that it can't get away from you at all. Where it says, hold fast the profession of your faith. The word profession is the word confession. And we understand that to be the words that we speak, but it really even means more than that in the Greek. It means to come in alignment 
to come in alignment. You know as well as I do that the Bible tells us that the spoken word, the gospel of Jesus, spoken in our mouths will bring supernatural results. We know that. We know that Jesus talks about moving mountains with our faith. But it's talking about a heart faith. It's talking about something that's a part of you, not just words that are parroted. In fact, we could teach a parrot to say certain scriptures. But I don't think we'd be expecting anything to come from that, would we? A parrot or similar talking birds can be instructed, can be taught to say certain things, but that doesn't mean they're saying it or the way they're saying it or what they're saying is real. That would be, if we taught them the word, that would be an empty confession because there's no heart attached to it. That's what this word profession means. It means to come in alignment, not just speaking empty words, but aligning your very being, your very spirit, the real you with the things that you're saying. The Bible talks about in several places it says in the mouth of two or three witnesses let every word be established. Well it also says Jesus said several times forever O Lord thy word is settled in heaven. Okay so the word of God is settled in heaven but in order for it to be established in your life and in mine it's going to have another witness. Establishes it for us. It may be settled in heaven but in order for it to be settled in us it's got to come from our hearts. Words spoken from our lips because of what we believe in their hearts. So he says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith, for he is faithful at promised. Why would Paul have to be reminding of the people or choose to be reminding the people of God's faithfulness concerning his promise? Doesn't that indicate to us that there are promises that the church might see as being unfulfilled? Certainly things that aren't manifested yet in their lives. Skip down with me to verse 35. He says, cast not away therefore your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. Cast not away your confidence. The words, cast, the word, Greek's word, Greek words that are translated cast uh, not away. Is, they really mean to throw something off of yourself. One place that this, uh, this word used, uh, this Greek word is used in the New Testament is in Mark chapter 10. It tells us the story of blind Bartimaeus. You remember the story without us having to turn over there? Blind Bartimaeus is sitting by the roadside begging. He hears a great commotion and tries to find out what's going on. Somebody tells us that it's Jesus that's passing by. So he starts crying out. And he makes enough of a racket for Jesus to stop. Apparently, Jesus has already passed by. But he stops, and he says, bring this guy to me. And something very significant is told us about uh, Bartimaeus, who's blind. And that is, he took the garment that he had wrapped around himself, a blanket or whatever it was that was wrapped around himself, and cast it away. He threw it off of himself. That's the same words that are used here for cast not away your confidence. See, that blanket however it was wound around him and it was an identifier too it was something specific that everybody knew that he was a government approved beggar there was some types of regulation that took place for people sitting by the roadsides and begging and so forth 
And he cast that thing off. In casting that thing off, it was the same as him becoming another man in his own eyes. It was the same as when God changed Abraham's name. The reason God changed Abraham's name is because he wanted Abraham to realize he's a new man. He's a new person. He's got a promise from God. Same promise that God made to him 24 years earlier. But now he's got a promise and a time for it to be fulfilled. And so every time Abraham uses his name, everybody that he tells about being given a new name, every time he says it, every time he hears it, it reminds him that he's not the same person he was just a year ago. He's not the same person he was concerning the promises of, of God that he was a year ago, or certainly not 24 years ago. So here where it says, cast not away your confidence, it literally means don't throw that off of yourself. Now the word confidence, is talk, as is used, is talking about boldness of speech. So where it says, cast not away therefore your confidence, it's talking about the boldness that they once held to because they were illuminated by the word of God. Because they received some kind of revelation. There was some kind of knowledge or information or light that came into them about what God said that he would do and what God had promised. And so they seized hold of that. But now after 20 plus years, they're at the edge of giving up. That they're, they're at the edge of surrender. Cast not away therefore your confidence which has great recompense of reward. You see that, word, that phrase, recompense of reward? Reward is, uh, is accurately translated. It means payment or reward. But the recompense of the reward, the reason it doesn't just say that there's a great reward is because the, the word that's uh, used for recompense is translated into the English word recompense. It means that there is feet to it, literally feet to it, or it's moving. So he's saying don't cast away your confidence because your reward is moving ever closer to you. When things are delayed, it doesn't look like anything's happening, does it? Paul's trying to encourage them by the Holy Ghost, don't give up. Don't give up. I know it's been a long time. I know it's been tough. It seems like there's somebody coming at you from every side. But don't give up. Because your reward is moving toward you. It's moving toward you. So the first thing he told them was to hold fast. Put all of your weight into it. Don't turn loose of those promises. Don't relinquish one bit of ground. Where it says hold fast, the words that are used for hold fast, it means somebody that has determined that they will not break, they will not bend, and they will not give, a, give an inch of the ground that they've been given by the promises of God. Here he says, cast not away your confidence. Don't throw away what you've held on to. Because it has a great recompense of reward. Your reward's moving to you. Notice verse 36. It says, for you have need of patience. That after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. You see the word patience? The word patience is uh, literally the word endurance. This is what the early church and many of the early church writers identify as the queen of all virtues. Because endurance means you won't give up. See, where the Bible talks about faith and those that uh, have faith and patience inherit the promises. 
It's simply saying, if we understood the, the meaning of this word that's translated pers- uh, patience, literally means endurance. It's talking about that same unwillingness to yield, refusal to yield. And the early church understood that if you've got faith in God's word coupled with endurance, then it's not a matter of whether or not you will win. It's just a matter of when. You have need of patience, endurance. It's the attitude that no matter what happens, whether things look better or look worse, no matter how I feel, chapter 11, the hall of fame of faith people. Look with me to Hebrews 11 verse 1. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I've got a minister friend that preached a, a, a message along this line here recently and I gladly admit that I'm stealing a lot of his stuff he knows the Greek a lot better than I do but here where he he took this verse 1 and this word substance the word substance is is really kind of difficult to to define and a lot of people try to use Hebrews 11 as the, the scriptural definition of faith which you certainly can There are a lot of wonderful truths that we can get from that. But the word substance literally means standing by. It means standing by. It's not talking about the definition of faith. It's talking about the behavior of faith. So it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It literally means faith is the standing by of things hoped for. Standing by. When it's talking about standing by, it doesn't mean passively. It means standing with a a, a tight grip. It means standing as you hold fast. It means refusing to cast away your confidence. It means being unbreakable and unbendable where the things of God are concerned. And we know that this chapter, we've read it many times. This chapter is all about people that wouldn't bend or break. And that's the only way that they made it in. That's the only way or the only reason that their faith is commended in this chapter. Because they refuse to bend. They refuse to break. So it says faith is the substance of the standing by of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Verse 2. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Now what is the chapter 11 about? It's about the elders. It's talking about the Old Testament saints. The patriarchs. And others that were instrumental in, in bringing about God's plan. The whole of the chapter is about the elders, right? So it says, by it, by faith, the faith that won't bend or break, the faith that stands by things hoped for. We may not see the promises, and they may, have been, may seem to be a long time coming, but we stand by no matter what. For by it, that kind of standing by faith, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Now, here's a question. If he's already told us, and he just told us in verse 2, that this chapter 11, this hall of fame of faith people, is about the elders, the Old Testament saints, and how they held fast to the things God promised them. Whatever the promise was that was illuminated to them, that made a permanent mark and changed their lives forever. If he's talking about the elders, and he is, why does he start talking about creation? 
not one elder had anything to do with creation, did they? For by it, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed. This word world means time. It does not mean the planet. It's not talking about God's creative ability. It's not talking about him recreating the earth and putting Adam and Eve in the middle of it. It's not talking about any of those things. It's talking about elders, humans, men and women, just like you and me. Flawed people with imperfections that oftentimes did the wrong thing just like we do. It's saying through faith we understand that those men and those women framed the world or changed or adjusted the world that they lived in because of their faith. It's saying that these men and women changed the world in their time period by holding fast, by standing by the truth, by refusing to cast away their confidence. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he put before. That certainly was the case with Noah. Same thing with Abraham bringing forth a child in his old age. Verse 6, we all know this one. It says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. The word without means outside of. It means separated from. It's not talking about a lack of faith. It's talking about the place or the position of faith. Let me explain what I mean. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It means you can use this word without to say that somebody is without the city. That doesn't mean they don't have a city. That means they're outside the city limits or the walls of the city. Now, you can be in the city or you can be outside the city, but you can't be both at once. And so when Paul starts talking about without faith, it's impossible to please God, he's talking about the place where we are in faith. See, God has designated and destined for you and I to be in a place called faith. And as long as you're in that place of faith, you're pleasing to him. That's why it says without faith, without being in that place of faith. We know what that is. That's holding fast to the promises of God. That's hanging on dearly to the things that have been illuminated to us by the Holy Ghost. Holding fast and refusing to let go, refusing to bend or break. Refusing to cast away our confidence. Refusing to be anything other than bold no matter how long it's been. Since we first started believing. No matter how much trouble we've had since we expressed. And declared our faith confidently and boldly. So he says without faith it's impossible to please him. He's saying that the only thing that can or will please him. Is to be in the place. In the position where we've taken hold of the promises of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Folks, verse 6 talks about two different characteristics. One is God's ability and the second is his willingness to, to bless. 
To believe that he is means you've got to believe that nothing's impossible with God. We're right back to where we started with Abraham and Sarah. We're right back to the place where the question had to be asked, is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, that's a real question for you and me. Is anything too hard for him? Is what you're believing for too hard for God to do? Yeah, but it's been a long time, Pastor Mike. And that's why we need patience. That's why we need endurance. A refusal to turn loose no matter what it looks like. No matter how it compares now to when we first started. Whether it's positive or negative. That's that endurance. That guarantees the victory. The queen of all virtues. As the early church deemed it. The assurance of victory. Because of our belief that God is faithful. Without faith. Outside of faith. It's impossible to please him. But in faith. In this place called faith. Where we're holding fast the promises of God. And declaring. In the face of contradicting circumstances. In that place. Promises that we find in the realization of those promises in our hearts. But it's not the just shall use their faith. God's faithful. He'll always come through. Always, always, always. I wonder how many people have turned loose of their faith just before their answer arrived. It seems to me, I don't know if you can make this a, uh, make a doctrine out of this, but it seems to me that the closer and closer we come to the answer or the end of our faith, the more and more temptation there is, the more and more pressure builds by the enemy to try to get us to turn loose. So I've started, since the Bible says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or tests, troubles, or afflictions. I've learned that the tougher it gets, I attach a meaning to that. The tougher it gets and the longer it goes means that I'm getting closer and closer and closer. So the more the devil tries to bring things up, the more he tries to put the heat on or turn up the pressure, there must be a reason why he does that. He knows I'm getting closer. And so are you. Faith never bends. Faith never breaks. It never yields and it never gives up ground. And that kind of faith brings the promises of God into reality every time. Don't give up, folks. No matter how tempted you might be, no matter how difficult things might have gotten, God is faithful that promised. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. When we speak his word, we establish it and settle it in us. If the word is settled on God's end and the word is settled on our end, what can the devil do to keep the answer from being ours? Remember what Jesus said upon the knowledge that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. He would build his church and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. I've told you many times, one translation says of that verse, and the gates of hell shall not be able to hold out against it. 
All the devil has, all the devil can do is no match for even the weakest Christian holding fast to the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've promised to see us through in every situation and never let us down. We've proven that in our own lives, Lord. And so we choose, no matter the circumstance, no matter the the test we're undergoing, we choose to hold fast the profession of our faith. We choose to keep ourselves aligned completely with your word so that we are in agreement with all that you have said and all that you've promised so that the word of God can work mightily in and through us. We choose, Father, as we hold fast to the promises that you've made to us, we choose to continue to be bold, to speak the word of God when it looks less like, less likely to be real now than it did when we began. That's when we're be, we'll be the boldest, Lord, because nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. We thank you, Father, that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that all of our needs are met. We thank you for abundance. We thank you, Father, that our reward is making its way swiftly toward us because you are a rewarder of those that diligently seek you. We call our businesses blessed, Father. We call our finances blessed. We call our body healed. Our bodies were healed by the stripes of Jesus. And we'll never let go of those truths, Lord. We'll never stop. We'll never yield to the devil, never give him an inch. We refuse to be stolen from. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.